start all your feedback with a question. And the question is super simple. Did that meet your expectation? You learn two really important pieces of information from that question. The first piece of information is, do we share the same expectation? So they might say like, yeah, that totally met my expectation. And I'm like, well, that didn't meet mine at all. The second thing you'll figure out is, Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Dave Klein, former associate at Bridgewater, ex Moody's Analytics, and PwC Consulting. The Bridgewater form of feedback was hard when I left. I had over 11,000 feedback observations. In this conversation, we crack the code of the management playbook. We define what it takes to be a good leader and how you can become one and how you can create a fulfilling business and career. Now you're like a coach. You're not an adversary. You're on their side. And so that's the next trick. So please enjoy this conversation with Dave Klein. Dave, welcome to Polyweb. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Okay. So while, uh, you know, preparing for this interview, we, we had a previous meeting and you told me something, which is that you were fortunate enough to have uh, a great manager at the beginning uh, of your career. And I'm curious to know how that influenced you and, and what did you learn from, from this person? So I actually had two. It was I was super lucky, like probably two within the first three or four years. So I'd say I took a lesson from each one. The the first one had a military background, which is something I didn't have at all. And I remember being in my first executive meeting, so C-suite from a very large company, and they absolutely lost it on us over the project. The project was a little bit over budget. You know, we were consultants, and these people like absolutely flipped out. And I was so impressed by this leader who just sort of was like calm, handled the questions, put things back into place, you know, and, and sort of restored order. And so I, you know, we were at beers afterwards and it was like, how, how, like, how did you get to be like that? Like I was, I wasn't even responsible. I was just like a brand new, you know, undergraduate just coming out of school and I was sweating bullets. And he said, look, I, I've actually been in places in the world where it was actually life and death. And he was like, there was nothing in that room that was even close to that. And so just that sort of that gift of like perspective of like, yes, it's business. Yes, it's important. People's livelihoods are tied to it. Um, our careers are very commingled to it. But like, it's not life or death. And to get that gift early, I think was super helpful to then be in pretty stressful situations and be able to be the same calming force, hopefully for my teams. Uh, so I'd say that was lesson one. Um, lesson two, flash forward three or four years, and this leader was on the heels of one of the ones that I feel like I also learned a lot from, but was probably what not to do. This uh, the, the what not to do leader at one point sat me down and asked me if I had seen the Godfather trilogy which I had. And if you haven't, it's a basically a, a very famous mafia trilogy uh, about a, a power family. And he explains that all of the lessons he's learned uh, in his career are, emanate from the Godfather. And that's how he runs his teams. And I was like, and he wasn't kidding. As, as I got to work for him for a year or two, and it was like, oh, you actually were serious, except that we're at a publicly traded company. And that's kind of weird. But then I got to work with, I think the second one, maybe the most influential leader. And his, you know, for me, his real 
his real gift was this balance of like Karen challenge that on one hand, he was like daring me to be better than I thought I could be. He was like setting a bar higher than I thought was possible. And he was pushing me in those ways. And yet I also felt cared for. I've, you know, like that when I did sort of like take a step too far, he bailed me out. When I did get stuck, he helped unstick me and sort of seeing that you could be not one or the other, but both. Right. I think some leaders want to be the challenger and some people want to be like your friend. And it turns out you can actually unlock people amazingly when you're able to do both. So I think that influenced a lot of probably the next 20 years of my career. Like even our our leadership program is like half about systems and how do you amplify yourself and then half about treating people like people and remembering that we're surrounded by humans and we should be human. Mm. How do you achieve that balance? Like what's stuck on my mind is, well, those sounds like great managers and probably great leaders, which are, is not the same thing at all. But We can debate that if you want. Oh, okay. Let's debate that. Like, <laughs> Why do you say they're not the same thing? Well, I think like a lot of people can manage other people, right? Or you can put in a position, let's say, to manage other people. Let's put it like this. That's phrase better, I think. But that doesn't automatically make you a great leader for those people. You can just like just manage, I don't know, their time, their task, tell them what to do, you know, like, yeah. I think yeah, like so people I, could so, do that. But, yeah. Well, so at the level of, could you give someone a manager title? Can you put someone in manager position and have them not be a leader? A hundred percent happens all too often, but I don't think that they're going to be successful. Like those, the, the age of like, we're way past the industrial revolution. You know what I mean? The idea of just like the manager manages the work and the people are replaceable. Like so much of it is knowledge work. So much of it is creativity. So much of it is unlocking people's real potential. And when you start to then dissect, well, who are the good managers versus the bad managers, right? The Mm. 60% of managers fail. So if you look at the 40% who succeed, what do they do? They do a lot of the things that when you describe them sound like leading, right? They care for their people. They challenge them. They're clear with their communication. They recruit the best talent. They create a clear system. They they like inspire people by connecting them to the mission. Like all of a sudden you're adding it up. And so when people are like, well, you can manage and not be a leader or you, I'm like, no, like you could be a bad manager and not be a leader, but I don't think it's even possible anymore to succeed in a management role and not lead. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the word is big. So I think there is space still for both possibilities. I know that I certainly have encountered both, like in my career, you know. Were, the, were those managers good? Uh, I'm going to pass on this. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve the right to not answer this one. But I think the pause tells me the story. It tells me the answer I need. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So what I found out is that you can be as good as man- as a manager as you are able to work on yourself. Let's just say that like the what I noticed for example is that I would uh, see my strengths and weaknesses reflected on my team. For example. And and that mm-hmm. like really gave me a lot of pause. <laughs> Yeah, it's not so easy. No, not at all. We, um, we actually spend, I I think 
I'll, I'll write this all the time that I think self-awareness is a superpower for a leader. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of a lot of the things you're describing, like I think if you don't invest time in sort of like, well, what am I like? What, what mindset am I bringing to work every day that either is helping me or hurting me? Like I, an example for me is I grew up relatively lower middle class. My parents split up very early. As a result, I have this mindset of, I take a lot of pride in doing things myself. Like I was pretty autonomous. I feel like I absorbed some of the like man of the house responsibilities as an 11 year old kid. And I sort of wear that with like a, a badge of honor. Like when something breaks, I fix it. You know, I don't call somebody when something needs to get done. I just do it. That served me really well early in my career. You know, like someone who was willing to pitch in and do the work and take stuff from their boss that they didn't want to do all allowed me to get promoted very quickly. But then all of a sudden you're a leader. And you're in a manager's role. And this idea of not asking for help, not getting other people who are better equipped to do the work, not valuing your time appropriately, all of a sudden was holding me back. Right. And so this idea of once I sort of came to terms with that and sort of saw, oh, what what was helping me before is now hurting me, that I sort of developed that appreciation for how self-awareness could play out. And then to your point, do you without it, you sort of end up with a team that looks like you, but with it you can then start to construct your team to be complementary, right? You can start to find people who are offsetting your weaknesses. You can find people who will tell you, you know, the different truth that you might not see yourself. And that's when one plus one equals three. And so, but it doesn't happen unless you know what you're building around. Yeah, like totally. I'm, I'm a product manager, you know, by, by trade. And product managers like are used to wear a lot of hats, Right. We mm -hmm. do many different things inside the company, depending also like how big is the company. Right. Um, in a corporate, uh, um, maybe it's, uh, you know, your role is more um, is more defined in a startup is yeah, literally like you do a bit of marketing, you do you know, a little bit of coding if you're capable of it. And going from wearing all these hats, you know, mm -hmm. and being a manager instead, where I don't have to do any more the actual work, right? Or, or rather, like the, the content of, of the work is shifting. I kind of really felt lost, right? Because, wait a minute, I was, you know, I was used to do everything, right? And now mm -hmm. I have to empower others to do the things uh, that I used to do. And I, yeah. at the beginning, I really got lost into this. I, I couldn't find the equilibrium between uh, doing things myself, which it felt like a stronger urge, and instead like empowering others and finding my new dimension. Yeah. I would say it's super common in the, in the file. And there's a couple of actual, there's a couple of additional pieces that make it even more complicated. So there's, there's one, a lot of companies don't, actually free you up to do the second thing. So a lot of times they're like, hey, can you keep your job as an individual contributor and manage? So now it's, and, and so you have that tension. And I, I see that probably happens more often than not. So you didn't, you didn't lose any sort of work that you need to do, but now you have to like oversee, develop, nurture people, grade their work, et cetera. Then you're put in this position of the first thing I'm very good at, it's probably why they promoted you to be the manager. The second thing is all new. So chances are maybe you're good at it, but you haven't, you don't feel confident that you're good at it. This is where like the imposter syndrome thing shows up and given a choice from doing something I'm really good at or something I might not be good at, 
you can guess which one people choose, which is the one they're good at. So now they're back to doing the work, not managing. And so you have this like very natural tension, right? Like that you're going to fall back on the thing you're good at. You're not going to manage. And then because you're not managing your team's like, this person's not a very good manager. And you get into this very vicious cycle, you know, and it's why I think it's so important to like give people the playbooks. Like it's a new craft. Like if you're going to learn how to be a developer, they're going to teach you how to code. If you're going to learn how to be a manager, most managers approach a development is I figured it out. You will too. Yeah. And that's just not a great way to do it. <laughs> you know, there are there are specific ways you can coach people, develop them, give them empowering feedback, set clear expectations, communicate what the team is doing, assess good talent, et cetera. There's just simple ways to do those that actually allow you to be a good manager. So let's go after this playbook, right? Okay. So, and this is uh, what I wish I had <laughs> also, you know, <laughs> like, let's say that- that's why you're writing now yeah, it's, most, it's mostly a love note to myself 20 years ago which is always the best thing right you write for yourself you know in the past like let's say you are you're promoted and for the first time you go from you know being an individual contributor to manage uh, other people have a team mm -hmm. you know so yeah. how could you become the best possible manager that you can be? What's the playbook? <laughs> All right. How much time do we have? Oh, um, we have a lot of time. This is a long form podcast. I take, yeah. you know, <laughs> take, take my time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think there's, there's almost two dimensions to it. And so why don't we, why don't we hit one, hit them separately? The, yeah. the two dimensions I would say are, What's sort of like, how would you go make your entrance into this team over the first hundred days? And, and so we can, we can pull off that, pull apart that framework. And then there's a second thing, which is how are you ensuring you're getting the support you need to learn this new craft? Right. I think the second part's easier. So I would just cover off on that, which is, and it sort of starts from that self-awareness place we, we began at, which is, okay, do you have alignment with your new manager who should be you know, now managing you? on what winning looks like, you know, like what do they want from a leader in this role? What do they expect you to deliver? Do they have specific ways they expect you to deliver? A lot of times people are super clear on the what, like this, you know, this team's going to do three releases this year, or this team's going to grow territory by $20 million or this, you know, et cetera. But the what matters a lot. The what, the what can be tied to the culture, like how this group operates, the what can be tied to team performance and happiness and engagement. The, the what can be tied to, specific security risks or legal risks. You know, there's lots of different components that are important to be aligned with your with whoever is assessing you on how you're going to take this on. And then I think the other side of that equation is what support do you need? Like, do you need training? Do you need a coach? Do you need access to them? Do you need a mentor within the organization? And that should be premised a lot on like, what have you proven capable of doing already? And what does this job require you to be capable of And how are you going to close the gaps on the ones you haven't done yet? So I think that's just like the basic playbook for getting the right support. Okay, but how do I know what I don't know? Like, you know what I mean? Like at the beginning, when you start something new, mm -hmm. you can figure out, yeah, okay, okay, I need to learn how to manage people, you know. But there are things yeah. that you don't know that you don't know. You know what I mean? Yep. So how do you go about discovering those if you become a first-time manager? 
Good. So you're leading into the second playbook, I think. Okay. So this is the one I think is, it is a little bit harder and a little more in depth. The, the way that I've coached people through it is I would break it up into three phases. I call it roughly a month per phase, but I don't know, like sometimes you can go faster, sometimes it's slower. I would say phase one is all about understanding. There's this, it's funny, I was coaching someone earlier today and I was saying like, there's this mistake when someone gets promoted or takes on a new team where they want to, they want to go in, have an impact, show strength, be confident, answer every question, change everything. Like, and it's the worst possible thing you can do in the first few weeks. Yep, um, done that. You, <laughs> right, but the reason, so you have to start with understanding because you have to, you have to sort of like, you have to understand the past. You have to understand like what you're stepping into and like, why did smart people make the decisions they made? Some of them were good decisions. Some of them might have been bad, but they made them. And like, how did you get there? And like, assuming that everyone who came before you was terrible is a bad way. So it's like, let me, let me at least understand the past so I can honor it. Even if we're going to change where we're going next. And so we can click into what you would focus on and understand. The second part is synthesize, right? So you're going to take all this information you've piled onto the table, all these connections you've made, the customers you've interviewed, the projects you've reviewed, the performance of value, all this information and say like, how do I make sense of this, right? Like what's working on my team? What's not working? What do I want to keep doing? What do I need to stop doing? What should I start doing? What's the most important, you know, initiatives for me to accelerate? Where are the quick wins? You know, things of that nature. You're, you should walk away with a bit of a, a roadmap of, Okay, now what do we do and who's going to do it? And then stage three is going to be execute. Like, okay, you've taken the time to really understand. You've developed your synthesis of what matters. And now you've got to put things into action, right? And the, the faster you can take action, the more you're going to get new data. So no longer relying on the data of the past, but now the data of the present, where it's going to give you that signal back to adjust as you go. And Frankly, I think if you take more than three months for this and you don't execute, like they're going to start to wonder what it is you're doing. So that's why I try to get through this as fast as possible. But I think a lot of people jump right into stage three. They're like, I'm in here. I just got to make things happen. And what you miss out in two key things, like you miss out on the real signal of what you should be doing and the ability to, again, sort of that idea that as you're elevating into this leadership role, part of what you're getting paid for now is to, to decide what to do, not just do it right? Figuring out what's important, figuring out the clever way, figuring out the new opportunity. And the other part is to bring everybody along. Like you want them to be bought in. You want them, that's where the, like you can use that synthesized stage for that purpose. Like let them help write the story. They're much more likely to carry it out if they feel like they're co-authors. So anyways, we can click into any of those three stages or all of them, but that's sort of, that's how I think you figure out like, what do you not know? Now there's frameworks in stage one that I think can help you, right? Because you want to sort of, you think about what, who you want to talk to, right? You probably want to talk to your manager, your customers, your team, your peers, any important vendors, depending on your group. And then you're like, well, what do I want to know from them, right? You sort of want to know like what's working, what's not working, where are their opportunities, where are their risks? That should give you a, a pretty rich surface area on everything except your people. And so on the people side, you want to start to assess, like, do I have the team I need? Are they performing, not performing, happy or unhappy, at risk or, you know, going to stay, things of that nature. And you sort of end up with like these two heat maps, the heat map of the work and the heat map of the team. And mm. that should guide you into that next synthesizing stage. Okay. So these, 
like what what you pictured, you know, like this roadmap is for mm. your first a uh, hundred days. Yeah. Right. Uh, which could be also like a hundred days, like in a new company, by the way, like uh, not just in a sure. in a new in a new position, right? So. I want to double click on the synthesize because then if you do this right, I think you can also execute pretty accurately, let's say. Mm -hmm. So in the synthesize phase, you said you take all the information that, that you got, which at this point is a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And you make something out of it. You make mm -hmm. a plan out of it. So yeah. how do you take all those uh, unstructured let's say, information that you get from all those different sources, you make them yours and you create a strategy around it. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, like, do you have any framework, anything that, you know, can help? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it, I think whether it's a framework or for me, it's like almost more an analogy that helps. Mm. So the analogy is I, I tend to, I have an engineering background, so I tend to be a systems thinker. And so that the, the analogy that tends to resonate for people is to think of everything as a factory, right? So you, you might run a customer service desk. That's your customer service factory. You might run a sales group. That's a sales factory, right? Like every factory at some level, it's super simple to understand. You're going to have some inputs. You're going to have some inside the factory is going to be a combination of people, process, and technology that should ideally produce the output you want, Right. So it's like you just take a like a sales organization. The input is going to be like we have something to sell inside of that factory is going to be a bunch of salespeople. They're going to follow call sheets and, you know, there's going to be CRM workflows and all of that. And ultimately what it should spit out is customers who have given have given them money. You know, like that's kind of the simplest version of the factory. And so the reason I, I go there is because then like, okay, as I'm dropping into this team and I'm getting all this information. The information is going to give me a couple of, of, of hints. Hint number one is there's already a factory running. Like whether you like it or not, something's happening. You have a bunch of people doing stuff. So, and you probably don't want to drop that, right? If you're in the middle of a sales season, you're taking over a new team. You don't want to like tell them to all stop while you figure it out. So there's part of the factory has to keep running as it is. And that's going to take capacity. You're going to think about, do I have the right people doing it, et cetera. Then there's a second set of work that's going to come out of this, which is how, where do I need to fix the factory? Where do I, that's going to be my improve. Like, how do I improve? Like, am I going to swap out a process? Am I going to put in a new CRM? Do I need to hire some new salespeople? Do I want to rearrange territories? Whatever those answers are that you've learned from sifting through all that information. And some might be things you can do quickly, like, oh, we're going to swap step two and step three in the factory. And some might be, oh, this is, we, we need to completely overhaul this. And it might take you six months or a year or two years. So it really just depends on what it is, your group and what your, what your thing is doing. And then again, sort of as we talked about in the setup, the, you're managing, you're leading people and you have, you have people in this factory, right? And so you're now figuring out, as I, as I start to anticipate the improved factory, do I have the right people working it? in the right, do, I, do they have the right capabilities? Are they excited to work in a factory like this? Do we have a culture where how they operate makes the factory go faster and perform better? Or is the culture sort of like rotten in some way and I need to like figure out how to undo that? And so, so that's sort of the analogy I have in my head. If it's not 
if that pile of information is not about how I run the factory, improve the factory, or get the most out of the team, it's probably not that important. Mm. How do you... So a few things that I struggle with in the past mm-hmm. that I'm going to throw at you, you know, like this. So the first thing is... For all those three phases that you mentioned, you know, like you say that more or less should be the plan for the first 100 days, right? Mm-hmm. And and I feel that this is certainly possible and doable, maybe in a bigger company, you know, where it's the, the organization is very complex uh, and you need time, you know, to figure out uh, who to talk to, how the various department works, etc., in a startup, however, you basically have to, you know, enter the company, you arrive and you start basically rolling and make a contribution, right? So how do you, how can people that, you know, work at a startup can kind of resist or push back, let's say, when they're asked to make a contribution before they feel really onboarded or they understand the business, well, I think there's two ways above it all, like the hundred days part, isn't the important part. Do you know what I mean? If you can, if you can assemble the information in two days and you can synthesize it in two days and like get on to execution next week, you know, like I don't, there's nothing, I think there's a mistake that managers who bring people in to lead teams make, which is like, they expect them to do that in four days. And I think that's typically unrealistic. But like the, the, I think the important part is like, did I get the information that I needed as efficiently as possible? Did I have a chance to sort of come up with my best view of it and get other people to contribute to that view? Because that will improve the quality of it and improve the buy-in. And then can we get going? So I think the two ways that I would try to do it, one is startups do tend to be a little bit messier and like, that's fine. Just sort of settle for less. Like you, there's this, even if you spent a thousand days doing it, you will never get all the information. You will never come up with the perfect synthesis, which again, is sort of like why I want to get to the execution phase, because I'm going to start generating new information to feed back into my choices. And so I'm just like, you should still try to understand the company and its culture and what led you here and why they brought you in and answer those questions. But like, constrain yourself and just go faster. So that's one version, which mm-hmm. like, I'm going to take on more risk because I'm going to go faster through these stages to get going. And that should be aligned to a startup. Like they should be okay with that and understand that. The, the second version is to like buy yourself some time. And so the way that I would do that is like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take you more than a week to figure out uh, two possible, two things. Now I can almost think of it as a two by two. It's like, is it going to be, is it hard or is it easy? And then is it, is it meaningful or not meaningful? Mostly to the team, right? And you're just looking for like the quick wins that are meaningful. And so by doing that, you can sort of pull forward some pieces from the execution and buy yourself time to actually go more slowly through the data accumulation and the synthesis of all the rest of it. So like to make that super practical, if I had to do two things, I would figure out like, what is the one thing that the person who brought me in thinks we have to solve? And I'd figure out how to start solving that right away. And then I would go to the team and say, like, and understand like the, the single thing that is most painful for them, either because of how we're constructed or what software they have or whatever else. And I'd solve that problem. And, he, and if you can solve the one problem the manager brought you in for and solve the one problem that's like frustrating the team, you just build trust and buy yourself time with those two core constituents. 
So that's how I would sort of hack this approach for a startup. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, actually. The second piece that I mentioned that I think people, myself included, struggle with is that when you start in, you know, as a, as a new manager or in a new job, you have, you know, processes that are running, right? Mm -hmm. And then there is your execution, right? So where you actually start to make your contribution. And it's like, at one point, those two things need to merge or, mm -hmm. you know, you need to lead towards your new path. Let's call it like this, right? Yeah. So how do you manage this transition, and how much effort do you do you allocate towards I don't know, keeping running existing existing processes and projects versus you know the new things new implementation? Mm -hmm. Well, I think if, if you're sort of following that same three stages, the, that synthesized phase gives you a lot of the it gives you sort of the place to have the conversation to do the transition, mm -hmm. right? Where if you're saying like, okay, we, we went through the inventory of all the existing processes and projects. And we said like, you know, these processes are, you know, they're, they're good, they're efficient, they're necessary. We're going to keep doing those, right? They're, they're going to go in my keep bucket. Oh, this process is important, but totally inefficient. Okay, that's, you know what I mean? Like it's going to go, I'm going to probably like improve that or I'm going to stop. To, if it's a total overhaul, I might stop doing it the old way and completely start a brand new way. Mm. Right. So you can sort of solve that with you. Maybe that, or maybe that's part of your improved project. So that's sort of how I would think about it is like the. It, the important part of that second stage is not the decision. It's sort of the bringing everybody along to, as part of the decision, you know, and like letting them like letting them object. Be like, I want to turn this off. Like everything you guys have told me tells me that this thing is not necessary. We should turn it off and get the, all, get all of your time back. And let them object. Like, let someone say like, oh, no, 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 no. You're missing why this is so absolutely critical. We have to do it. Our factory will shut down without it. Or they'll all be like, thank God. <laughs> like, get us out of that business. Thank you for the time back. We'd love to work on more important work. You know, so I think you want to, there's a reason not to rush through that stage, which is like, you can sort of just decide for everybody without that chance for them to give you feedback and get the buy-in, et cetera. And you're just making it harder when you actually try to execute because then they're going to push back on you or you're going to make bigger mistakes that you have to unwind, things like that. So that's, that's the place I would do most of that work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the last piece. Okay. So you said before that, you know, one of the... One of the things that you will look at is culture and, you know, if the culture supports, let's say, mm -hmm. the type of team environment, you know, that, that you envision to allow the team to perform at its best. What happens uh, if the company doesn't have that type of culture? How can you, you know, as a manager of a single team or a unit influence and create instead a culture that supports rather than detract. So I, I mean, I, well, it's a, it's a, we should just pull it apart because it's, it's a, it's a vital question, but it's like, it, it's a little bit tricky. So let me tell you why I think it's tricky and then we can pull it apart. I think it's tricky because at some level culture is like really hard to understand. And then at another level, it's super easy. Like at the level that's super easy, it's like the sum total of all your behaviors, right? Like, You can, you can write a lot of slogans, but that's not your culture. Your culture is like, how do people actually behave when, when 
they're at when they're doing the job when they're at work. And that's like how your leadership behaves. That's how your customer service desk behaves. And so there's there's part of like it's super easy. It's just like can you then get the behaviors you want? Okay. Now the reason I say it's complicated is because you your premise was okay, the company culture doesn't support the behaviors you need to achieve the mission. And the and where it's hard is like, well, why? First is why? Why doesn't that happen? One version of it is like, they haven't really focused on it. It's sort of not a, like, that's not the way the leadership is wired. So like cultures just sort of happened organically. So it wasn't an intentional choice. It just sort of has unfolded the way it's unfolded. There's a very different version of it, which is the leadership has been very intentional and those behaviors are very much on purpose and they're running up against how you would want to operate. And I'm like, that's hard because I think you may have just made a bad choice. Like you may have picked the wrong company to go work for. And if you are trying to create a team whose culture is going to like run against the culture from above that is being created, you're never going to get anywhere. Like it's just super hard. Like I... You know, my my last 10 years working at a company was Bridgewater. Bridgewater is very well known for having a very strong culture. We had, I, I ran a team, it was a new team, and we were really struggling early on. And so one of the one of the things that I was seeing is like I'm not getting, despite being in this clear culture, I'm not getting the behaviors I think that I need for people to feel really engaged, to, to find like reward in the work we were doing because it was hard, it was kind of controversial work. And so what we did is we did an exercise and said, like, well, what can we codify the behaviors? Like, can we write down and agree? Like, these are the behaviors we think need to happen on this team for us to win. But the rule, like the, the sort of the guiding principle above that was it had, to, it had to align to the company's culture. Like we couldn't be, it could be additive, but it couldn't be at conflict. And so we went through that process and it worked out. You know, we, we actually gave the pen to the most junior people. We we're like, what would, what do you think we need to do and change in terms of how we approach problems, how we interact with our internal clients differently, et cetera. And that gave us a, a shared language. We started to find the stories of people doing it successfully. That gave us a shared mythology. We changed a few of our ways we, ways we interacted to build rituals that reinforced that culture, that reinforced those values, that made sure that, yeah, we were debriefing in a way that everyone understood was meant to be mutually supportive, et cetera. So it can be done. You just need to make sure that it is in alignment with the company culture. Mm, Otherwise, yeah. I think it's a it's an impossible task. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult indeed. <laughs> you you just mentioned Bridgewater and your, your time there. And, mm -hmm. you know, for listeners who don't know, Bridgewater is the investment firm of, of Ray Dalio. And it's known for having, uh, as you said, a very strong uh, company culture. So maybe, I, could you talk about your, your experience uh, like working there? And what do you think it's applicable of some of the principles and practices that you saw at Bridgewater could be applicable to other companies today? or could benefit other companies today? Yeah, I think the, the two that seem most universally applicable as I work with all these other companies, one is a, a more systematic approach to managing and leading. You know, like the, 
Yeah, I don't think Bridgewater invented this, but I think it was very much how we were wired, right? We were we were a systematic asset manager by like how we were we came up, and that sort of bled over into how we operated. And I think that sort of aligns a lot, lines well with a lot of companies you see today, because a lot of companies are tech companies. They tend to be more engineering driven or product driven, anyways. And so I think that to some degree, even though we weren't in that space the those tack those approaches align very well right a lot of the people who work with us they're engineering managers they they're software developers by design they're product leaders etc like they they like approaching the world from a systematic perspective and you know getting data through feedback to improve the system measuring results through okrs things of that nature and so that i think is pretty universally applicable the second one that i think surprises people is is sort of candid feedback now, I think there's a version of candid feedback that happened to Bridgewater that was probably one step too far for most organizations. It worked there because there was almost like a contract on the way in that you knew that's how it had to be. And I think why it's hard for companies to import that extreme version of it is because people didn't make that agreement with you on the way in. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't set from day one that like, I'm going to tell you the unvarnished truth and you're going to tell me the unvarnished truth and that's just how we're going to operate. It's also could, sorry, could you describe uh, yeah. how it worked, like this form of candid feedback at Bridgewater? Yeah. Well, the one thing, let me just underscore one more thing. We also were exclusively at that point in the US. So that's another reason I think it's really hard to export it. Okay. Because when you get into cultures of other countries, the like, like the Bridgewater form of feedback was hard even for Americans. And I think you, as you go further afield, you, you see wildly different ways that people do or don't take feedback that directly. Some cultures are think it's like have no problem being even more direct, and some think it's like offen- like deeply offensive. So I just wanted to like underscore that because I know you have a pretty global audience, and it is going to be it's going to vary a lot. Well, I think there's, there's, there's probably the two ways that are most extreme for people would be like the the directness and the volume. So the volume, like the expectation was you were always giving feedback to the point that we had created a tool that allowed people to register feedback real time. And we were so you were supposed to do it in every meeting, in every interaction. So I left um, that tool probably rolled out halfway through my Bridgewater career. And when I left, I had over 11,000 feedback observations. Um, and those feedback observations are recorded in a system. They're publicly available. Like imagine a Twitter feed of all the feedback you'd ever gotten from anybody you can look up everybody's in the company. So there's so there's a volume component. And then again, we if you sort of read through some of the principles, some of them are written pretty extremely to say, you know, there's one which is like, worry about being accurate, not kind, right? And so you're like, oh, okay. Like that, some people could take that. There's one that was like, that was called like, put some pepper on it. Like there was, we were almost encouraged to say things that were provocative, which just, if you think about just the general decorum in most companies like you're not really seeking to create controversy or to like be spiky in terms of like your feedback to somebody and in fact when we run our program like i don't teach that because it doesn't work it doesn't work in any place it doesn't have that agreement and so instead you know what i i do think people being more candid a lot if you look at high performing teams from the military to sports to companies etc they all do really prize feedback and they build ways to make sure they're getting it. And so partly what I think is exportable is that idea that like we do need to be more candid with each other. You can do it in ways that are kind. 
you know, the, the simplest way I've found is like a, it's almost a Mad Lib. It's like when you blank, I experienced blank, which resulted in blank. And the blanks are easy. It's like when, when you, this is what a camera would have seen, right? If a camera was watching you present or you deal with that client, like this is the factual thing that happened. And then it's like, I experienced, right? So now it's like, this is how I experienced the situation. I, you can't really debate me on it because I experienced it. Like I could have experienced it wrong. It might not have been your intention. I don't know your motivation, but this is like, when the camera saw this thing, this is what happened to me. And then that resulted in like, hopefully we have clear goals, clear projects, clear, like that thing you did that I experienced this way resulted in this bad outcome. It resulted in the client storming out of the room. It resulted in us losing the account. It resulted in the software rollout being delayed two weeks. Like, again, just back to a fact. And by simply giving feedback in that way, like people, you don't trigger people's like lizard brain. Like the, because there's usually a fourth sentence that people add onto it, which is because you blank, like because you are lazy because you don't care, because you're not committed. And that's the one that triggers everybody. Like That's the one that like we switch from, are you trying to help me get better and trying to help us win to are you attacking me? Um, and so if you just sort of follow the Mad Lib, leave out the last sentence, we'd all be so much better because now we're just transacting in like, how can we get better? Like, how can you play your possession better? How can I play my position better? And if you have that fluidity, you're just going to, improve as a unit so much faster mm. okay this is certainly difficult because like giving people feedbacks uh, but also accepting feedbacks uh, right how how was it for you for example like seeing uh, all those feedbacks uh, you know back when you work at bridgewater like uh, how i mentioned like you know some might might have felt harsh you know so mm -hmm. how do you work through that uh, and try to incorporate those feedback you know i'd say that some didn't feel harsh they were harsh but uh, the reality is it's funny when we teach our program i teach it with my wife so we are very much alike in many ways but this is one place where we're we are actually a little bit different and like this works really well with um, the leaders we work with because on one hand you have me where I sort of think of that feedback as, well, is it true or is it not true? Like, I'm very dispassionate about it. I'm just like, oh, someone, someone took the time to give me a signal back on terms of how I'm performing. They could be right. They could be wrong. They could be biased. They could be unbiased. They could be, a lot of times feedback says more about them than it says about me. But I'm just sort of looking at each of those observations and saying like, well, is it true or is it not true? And if it's true, I should. And then the second thing I say is if it's true, do I care? Right? Like they might say, oh, like you're not being, you know, you're not being organized enough. And I'm like, well, we're doing a really creative project and organization is not really something I care about. Or this is where I'm taking my career and like that thing's not holding me back. So like, A, I appreciate it. B, it's true. And C, I don't really care. But for the ones that are both true and sort of holding me back or like would allow me to perform better, like, wow, what a gift. Like, that's like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to get so much better if I can sort of like take the truth out of those things and apply it than if, I, than if I waste time being offended. And so that's sort of the way I do it. But my wife, on the other hand, like she will, she'll talk about it of like, even if it's, even if it's, she knows it's true. And even if it's like, it's like, or even she doesn't know it's true. It like hurts. It like, it like hits her. 
she'll like when she talks about it in class, she'll be like, it hits me like right between the eyes, you know, and that might even be from like me and I've known her for 30 years, you know, and, and like we're not. And so you sort of get to this place of like, is that whole spectrum exists. And what I've, what we sort of like encourage people is like, just recognize that whole spectrum exists. You know, like you will say, you'll give feedback to people like me and then it'll be like metabolized and like, you know, may or may not get reaction. You may give feedback to someone like my wife and it might like really hit and like really hurt and sting. The way that I have found to deal with all those people more effectively. So this is like, if, if you get the Mad Lib down, then the next step is start all your feedback with a question. And the question is super simple. Like, did that meet your expectation? And what you find out is you learn two really important pieces of information from that question. The first piece of information is like, do we share the same expectation? Right? So they might say like, yeah, that totally met my expectation. And I'm like, well, that didn't meet mine at all. And so we should figure out whether we have different expectations. The second thing you'll figure out is if you had the same expectation, do they already know they messed it up? Like, did they already make the mistake? Like, they got, do they see it? And in the and in 90% of the cases, the answer is yes. Like, they know they missed. They know that wasn't a good interaction. They know the client was ticked off. Like, they saw the same thing you saw. And by asking them the question, they get to be the one that uncovers it. And now you get to almost like come around to their side of the table and say like, oh, how, like, what do we do about it? Like, how can I help? How can I help you avoid this next time? How can I help you be more effective next time? What do you need from me? Now you're like a coach. You're not an adversary, right? You're not the critic anymore. You're on their side. And so that's like, that's the next trick. It's just like, just ask a question and you'll learn so much more. They'll feel so much more heard because it's a conversation. Then if you do need to give feedback, again, you sort of have brought the temperature way down. Um, so that's my, that's sort of my, that's how I've embellished the Bridgewater approach to uh, make it a bit more accessible for the world. Okay. I'm going to absolutely steal this question. <laughs> forward i love it Do so it. much that's why we, that's why we teach it i love it so much Good. and it's really important yeah like what's the when it comes to giving feedback you know like what's the right timeline right do you do you give a feedback immediately or do you wait until you have like a so-called performance review like many companies do have like no. twice I, okay <laughs> you do that immediately like, well, it doesn't have to be. So I would say the saving it for once a year in the performance review, worst possible outcome. Yeah. The best possible outcome is consistency. Mm. So except unless it's once a year and then not consistent enough. Because if you have a cult, like, so like the Bridgewater culture, the consistency was real time, right? The consistency was. And so yeah. you just, it didn't, again, I keep going to the lizard brain because the thing you're trying to do with feedback is to get people to hear it, metabolize it and perform better, Right. And so if you trigger the emotional response, they, they have stopped hearing you and you've lost. And so the thing that makes, but puts people on heightened awareness is, is leaders who are erratic. And so that's why I say consistency is the most important thing. So if your consistency is real time, if your culture has established, like we give feedback when it happens and that's how we roll. Great. Do that. If that's not your culture, because a lot of like a, a really pragmatic reason that might not be your culture is you're remote. Like, something that everybody's wrestling with now is like they used to give feedback walking back from a meeting on the way to the next one. And now it's gone. There's no more walking back. We drop off a zoom and disappear. And so that might be that you might then have to say like, I will give feedback in all of my one-on-ones or we will create a 
you know, I have, we work with some companies who've created these rituals of like, they come together at the end of the week and they sort of use that to give feedback. And sometimes it's praise and feedback. You know, it, there's different ways to sort of go through that. Cause again, feedback doesn't have to be negative. It can also be positive. In fact, more than half of it should be if you're really trying to play the game well. But so th that's what I would say is like the, the specific frequency is less important than are you consistently doing it when you say you were, when you've sort of agreed to do it. Mm, okay. That's, that's interesting. And I agree with you. Like the remote, uh, remote, more. yeah, the remote setup, it makes it more challenging. However, mm -hmm. like it's very difficult that people bother like slacking you after a meeting and say, giving you feedback, positive or negative, you know, it's like, okay, just finish this meeting. I'm going to go to the next one and to the next one, you know, and then just get, get lost. But it's important to still retain. Yeah, I think it's really important to still retain, you know, this type of culture and, and loop for a team to work well. Let's assume that you, you are now, you know, well settled in your, uh, in your role as a manager. How do you then position yourself as a leader or expert, let's say, both within the organization and uh, maybe also outside of the organization with your, I don't know, external stakeholders on social media. How, how do you do that? I, I, so this is something I was really horrible at. Um, really? And, yeah, it was terrible. And then it's funny because I've... I've I've only come to recognize the value of this very late in my career to the point that we, our last module in the program and our leadership program focuses exclusively on this oh, um, okay. because I was so bad at it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I left all this value on the table. I, it's funny. If you ask me like, why, like I would put, I would put what you're describing sort of in this group of like two words that would like always make me cringe a bit. So one of them would be like personal brand and the other one would be networking. Right. Like to some degree, the thing you're describing is, you know, like, how does the world know you and who is the world? And I, I like chafed at both of those. I was like, I don't like a brand, like who would be so like, I don't know, like it was just like, who, who would be so vain? You know, and then networking was always so like I pictured these like terrible conferences where I gave you my card and you gave me your card and we like maybe would eventually do business together. It was like so transactional. It just felt so inauthentic to me. And so I just sort of I used the fact that I was at a very secretive hedge fund as a reason to just like hide on both those fronts. And what was interesting is I, I had built a reasonably good brand inside the walls of the company. Like people knew what I was and what I wasn't, right? Like they, they sort of knew like because of that, like very transparent feedback system, my brand was on display all the time. And so if you needed coaching and development and like, guide like wise guidance was sort of like one of the things it's like yeah you could go to dave and he was like a good mentor in those ways and then if you needed other types of things you probably wouldn't and so i had that inside and then i like left bridgewater and was like well the world should know all these things about me and, and it was like crickets like no one knew anything about me and so a little bit the the online profile is accidental because of the business we currently have but the thing that broke through for me on the networking side was this concept of community versus network like this idea, it was funny. I read this book and it's like this parable. It's called The Go-Giver. I heard about it. How is it the book? It's, I mean, it's, 
I don't typically get super excited about business parables, but it was like, it was meeting, it was like it was one of those magical moments where the book met me at the right time. Mm. Where like, because I was writing on social media, I had this vehicle where the message of the go-giver was mostly, um, if you give into all the things you do appropriately, if you just sort of give value without any expectation in return, it ends up coming back. And without social media, I don't think I would be able to see it, but being able to see like, oh, this, this positive sum dynamic that exists on social media, right? Like if, if you and I are close friends on social media and I help you grow your audience and then you're sort of engaging on my stuff, that helps grow my audience. And so when you win, I win, right? And that idea, like so much of like working in finance and a hedge fund is zero sum. It's like when I win, they lose and vice versa. Like if you go find Alpha in the market, you took it from somebody else. And so it was like this great like book meets reality moment that then sort of got me to see like, oh, I don't have to worry about networking because I'm not looking for anything in return. If I just write things that are valuable to people, if I just make introductions that opens up new opportunities for people to get investors or get a new job, if I invite people in and just give them advice to help them through something I've solved before, all of a sudden things will loop around. And that's amazingly what happened. You know, and so this idea of building a community now, I'm like, oh, and we, we experienced it yesterday. Like my, my wife and I have been struggling with like, what do we do with our alumni? We have like 500 leaders who've been through our program now. And we're super cognizant because these are all leaders of like, you know, from startups to big teams and companies, et cetera, like putting another meeting on someone's calendar. We don't take that lightly. And so we were like, what do we do with these folks? And so we, we created this optional, just alumni Q&A, like come on in. And like, bring us your problems and challenges and we'll sort of talk through them and it'll probably benefit other people. And a funny thing happened halfway through. So we had um, a bunch of alumni on halfway through our power went out yesterday. And so of course, because my wife and I were, you know, we obviously live in the same house too. Both of us were kicked off the meeting immediately. And we were like, oh my gosh. So like after two minutes of panic and getting on cell and hot spotting, we get back in and the meeting's still going. Like, the, the the community just took over like and they were all coaching each other and so for the next half hour we mostly just sat quietly while watching you know leader at company one from cohort one helping leader at company two from cohort nine like they had never met and then the, like the crazier part that happened afterwards is we got all these notes of people like that was amazing such a good use of time you should do more of that and the a couple of them mentioned like the one thing they the only thing they had in common was that they had been through our program, they had gotten to know Mar and I, and somehow that created enough trust to transfer that those two strangers could trust each other, could take each other's advice, could give counsel just because they had a, a shared but different experience. So it was, anyways, it's, it's, this is like, I'm still processing it as you can sort of hear as I talk about it, because it was like this magical, that boomerang coming back around on the creating of a community. And I was like, wow, I don't, I don't quite know how to agitate more of that, but I, I would like to, because that seemed magical. How did you at the beginning overcame that, that belief, uh, you know, that you had related to sharing your story and like the, cr the initial cringiness, uh, let's say. I would say there are two main drivers. Necessity was the biggest one. We had bought a business. It was web-based. Google changed the algorithm and cut my business in half overnight. And so our, the, the logical thing we thought to do was we needed to, A, fix that, but B, hedge and start to build a social media presence. And so I, I just sort of had to swallow it and say, like, I, need, I don't know how to do this. I need to go learn how to do it. And it's going to be important to 
you know, maintain the investment we just shelled out a lot of money for. The second part was I took a, I took a course. I took a course with Saul Hill Bloom, who's a pretty big personality on Twitter. And in that course, he sort of broadly gave out the like, here's how I would go about doing it if I had to do it over again. But he said two different things that like have always stuck with me. One, which is right on the nose of what you said, which is like, if you don't look back a year from now and cringe at some of the things you did, you're probably not trying hard enough. And so like, that was good. It was like, okay, like this guy achieved a lot of success in this domain and he's cringing at stuff he did a year ago. Okay, this is natural. There was a second piece which he said that helped as well, which was you have two choices every time. Like this is in a social media context, but I think it applies more broadly, which is you can, you can publish it or not publish it, right? That's sort of at the end of the day, it comes down to like, do you hit publish or not? If you don't hit publish, it's a guaranteed zero. No one will read it. No one will see it. You'll get no feedback. Nothing happens. If you publish it, one of two things happen. It takes off or no one sees it. So in a world where it's bad and, it, and no one sees it, you're exactly the same as not doing anything, but you have this asymmetric upside for the few times it does. And so like, in a, and that just sort of resonated with me, like in a world of like, you're constantly looking for asymmetric bets, bets where you don't lose much, but you only gain. It's sort of like that, that's flipped the switch for me. I'm like, oh, I just can, I can publish and publish and publish and publish. I won't always know what's good. I will do my best to make it good. And then I will get signal. Then I will get some traction, et cetera. And so that's, that's sort of the, how, how I overcame the like imposter syndrome cringe. Like, I can't believe I'm on Twitter writing things for a guy who for a decade never liked comment or, or retweeted a single thing. Yeah. And that's why I asked you this question, because I feel that a lot of people right now are kind of in that spot, right? They kind of realize that having a presence on social media is important, but they they kind of struggle with it, you know? So, but you said something about asymmetric bets and, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, right? Yeah. What sort of asymmetric bets do you think are a no-brainer today for, for managers and in general for people who want to start a business? So the, when you were, when you were setting it up, the thing that was coming to mind immediately for me was, again, I was sort of going back to like, well, what did I screw up? And if I could go back 20 years, I would like do it differently. I woefully mispriced the value of investing in myself. Mm. So I, and it's funny that even if we just go back literally 18 months to when I was taking that course with Saul Hill, I remember sitting at my computer and it was like, I think the course was like $700. Which, and I was like sitting there with my finger over the mouse for like 20 minutes. Like, this is a lot of money. Is this going to be worth it? Should I do this? Oh my gosh. And I'm like, I now look back at that and I'm like, holy, I literally have a business that has like, we, we've worked with 500 managers. We've worked with 20 companies. I'm an advisor. I'm on a board. Like the things that came out of that $700 investment, like I don't even know how many X's to put on it. It's like, is that a thousand X? Is it 10,000 X? Like it's massive. And I'm like, it was like that light bulb went off for me of like all the decisions I had made for the last 20 years in terms of like not investing in like my own expertise and learning and development and coaching. And I, it's really only in the last three or four years that I've, you know, gotten my own coach and, and things of that nature. And so if I had, 
that would be one where I'm like, it's asymmetric. Like every, every thousand dollars you put into yourself at 22, at 25, at 30, at 40, at, you know, mid forties, like you get to reap the rewards of that for the next decade, like for decades. And each piece compounds on the next piece. And like, that's the thing we're all trying to do is like, how do you compound? And so if your downside is a thousand dollar course or a $10,000 coach and your upside is hundred X, 200 X, a thousand X, like that's massively asymmetric. And I think that if you just go to someone starting the business for the first time, like there's lots of ways, there's lots of places to go get that, right? Go get a business coach, go join on deck and be part of an entrepreneurial community, you know, go be a part of chief. You know, there's lots of places where you like, those are expensive. Like these aren't inexpensive choices, you know, like the three I just laid out there are probably five to $10,000 a year. But I don't know if you, if you do see Alex Hermosi, he's on every yeah. social media. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, he, I'm actually listening on audiobook to, to his book right now. Oh, are you? Yeah. He had, but he has this, I was listening to a podcast a few months ago and he said this thing, which like really resonated with me, which is like, people talk about the cost of a course or the cost of a coach or the cost of a program. But the better way to think about it is like, what's the price of your ignorance, right? There's two, you, you can go get that info. You're going to go learn that lesson in one of two ways. One way you can learn the lesson is like the hard way and you'll eventually fumble into it. The other way is to get gifted that information, that lesson, that framework, that approach right now and start building off of it. And so if, if having that information or that framework or that tactic was worth a million dollars, like, and the, and the, and the program cost you $5,000, you actually are paying $995,000 for your ignorance. <laughs> so pay the five grand. Completely. And I, this is, I think like in the last year, like that's my biggest aha as well. Like that, that investment in yourself. The, there's a corollary mistake that I think so many businesses make that I like, I still sort of scratch my head at, which is it usually is triggered by someone saying like, I, I really think I need a $5,000 raise. I got approached by another company or I've done the market research and I, I think I'm undervalued here. Mm -hmm. And the company says <clears throat> no. And then the person leaves and then they have to go hire somebody new. And like to save $5,000, they literally just spent like $100,000. And it's the same. And that might be a raise. That might be like, I need a coach. That might be, I need training. That might be, I need, I'd love to get a new position here. But it's like, they get so fixated on like, some, oftentimes it's a bureaucratic decision. Often sometimes they'll have, the manager will have to go spend capital to get the $5,000 or to get the coach approved, whatever else. And it's like, it's so upside down. It's like, you don't look at the, don't look at the expense that's being asked for. Look at the, look at the expense you create if it goes the wrong way. And I'm not advocating for managers to be taken hostage and have every person on their team demand everything they need. But like, I watch people lose stars over this. People who are who are paying for themselves many, many, many times over, and you're just like, it's it feels the same way. It's very much the I don't know. You're 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 like penny wise to be pound foolish. It's just, um, anyways, yeah. that's my PSA for the episode. Yeah, like your pet peeve. <laughs> totally. Like, I have one last round of questions before we wrap All up right. the the episode, and it's still leading, you know, towards starting your business, right? So 
let's assume you have to start now from scratch again. Okay, so you you have to launch a business. And it could be anything. It could be, you know, a startup. So some type of software, SaaS solution of any type. Or it could be... Or it could be something in the realm of the creator economy, let's say, right? So I'll try to imagine. So <laughs> I know that you're familiar with that. So first of all, which type of business would you pick today and why? Well, you want to know which one I would pick for me or which one someone in the world should pick for them? Good question. Let's say, what do you think in general will make most sense for the majority of the people? I, I, I don't know. So this is very much biased off of like where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I think the one that you can commit to for 10 years. So I don't know. I think there are plenty of opportunities. Like if you, it, do you know what I mean? If you want to be a podcaster, be a podcaster. You want to be a writer, be a writer. You want to start a a gen tech company, a fintech company, like there are so many things transforming the world right now that if you want to build a big company, go build it. The thing that I think people skip is like what it will take you 10 years. Like so many companies, whether it's the creators that I know, the ones who are, are big names now, they've been at it for five years, for eight years, for 10 years. The big companies I work with, Like they didn't get founded last week. Like most of them have been at it. Like we look at open AI and it's like this revelation, like they've been at it for eight years. Like I'm an advisor to this company invisible. They've been at it for eight years. Like, and they're, you know, like these are people who everyone's now starting to notice because they're like getting into the hockey stick part of the business. But like those founders had to like deeply care about the problem they were solving for a decade. And so that's how I would approach it. I don't think there's like one size fits all for like the best business it's the one you can stick with. Mm. How how did you make the choice for you then? Uh, I, I, I love I love working and coaching people. Like it's just I've always sort of been like curious about business and management and leadership. Like the things that I'm in, I I have a predisposition to want to do two things. One, I want to lead it and run it and manage it if I'm involved with it. And then the other is I I do think a a thing that I am good at is sort of staring at a situation and pulling it apart and making it accessible for people. And so I think that seems to be the feedback we get for our newsletter and for my posts and for the course. And so I think that's true. And so I love doing those things. And so I can imagine, I can imagine doing them kind of for until I run out of time. Like, I don't, I don't like people talk about retiring. I'm like, I can't imagine retiring. I could imagine being more discerning with who I work with or slowing down how much work I do to do other things and have new experiences. But like, I don't know that I'll stop doing this. So I, like, I don't, I knew I could do this for a long time. How do you think about in your business, you know, outsourcing some of the tasks that you do versus keep doing what you're doing? Right. Especially if your goal is over time to scale, you know, and to grow bigger, if that's the goal. Yeah, I was laughing to myself. Do you know the phrase the cobbler's children have no shoes? (laughs) So I'm laughing because I literally teach (laughs) leaders how to delegate. 
Okay. And then one of the hardest things I have, <laughs> one of the most challenging things for me has been delegating things to outsource people. But anyways, I actually have a way I do it. The part of it is, it's a little, I think this is a little bit different than like what I would teach in sort of like at a normal company because it's the, the business I'm in right now is sort of me. Do you know what I mean? So I am, I'm also in that unique position where I get to choose a little bit what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And so for me, I'm optimizing around, you know, like call it like my zone of genius. Like where mm -hmm. am I uniquely adding value? Where am I super excited to be doing it? For me, it's coaching and writing. Like I love working with people. It could be one-on-one, -on -one, it could be a group, it can be the whole group, you know, it can be the full cohort that we do. Going back and forth and debating and helping them unlock a problem, like that is magic for me. I can do that until I run out of voice. And I love to write. Like I, if you give me three hours and like quiet, I will, I will write. And it's like, I find it therapeutic and insightful for myself and helpful for others. And so those things I can't bring my, I can't, I, I'm not interested in outsourcing. The rest of it that makes the systems go, the way that I try to think about it is where can I go just skip a step by hiring expertise? You know, so like we're working on like a video course. I could probably, if we go back to remember the mindset in the very beginning when I was like, oh, I, I really like to be able to do things myself. I take great pride in it. Every ounce of me wanted to go figure out how to do video, but that was just dumb. That's the slowest path to victory. There are people who have cracked the code on this. They are expert in this. And so I went and partnered with two people who have done this exact thing and they are helping me do it. So that, so probably the biggest place is like, where do I want to take my business and where is expertise that I can just go hire from day one? Part of it is just to prevent me from drifting into figuring it out, um, which is what I would want to do. The other one is just things that have become necessary for our business, sort of in that factory analogy, things that are in, we're running the factory. So they're pretty well proven out. They're, they're pretty standardized and I just need, but still humans have to do it. Like if, I will, I will delegate to computers first if I can, but if I can't, then I need humans to do it. So these things that are, they have to happen. They're pretty well documented. They are, you know, they're, they're proven at this point. That's the next place I go. So like those two are probably where I'm putting most of my effort to um, engage outsourcers. I'm on a mission to do a third, but that one's going to take longer. Okay. Um, yeah. We're a bit tight on time now that, but I'm I'm open. Like I have time, and if you want to explore the third, I'm open for it. So. Yeah, the quick version of the third is just the third. Well, it's nice. There's a quick version and a not quick version. The quick. It's like, how ambitious can I be with delegating? The reason that's not that simple is it's sort of premised on like, well, what do I want this business to be? Do you know, do I want it? Like right now, it's my wife and I, supported by a few smart freelancers and outsourcers, and that is a that could be a very a, a, that could be a very great lifestyle and B, because of the, the rise of technology and the internet and all these things, like I can be a pretty big business without actually needing to, to build more complexity. But we have this mission to impact a million leaders. And the debate for me is like, can I actually meaningfully impact a million leaders in that setup or do I actually need other people to help me do that? And so that's, so first is a decision to say, like, do I want other people who are part of this company to go achieve that mission? And then if so, I think my, my third tier of delegating becomes quite different. Okay. So you love to tell me, how did you find, how do you, did you answer those questions for yourself then in the future? I'll do that. Okay. Dave. I think this is a good place to wrap up, you know, our, our interview here. 
I have certainly enough question to do like a part two of this interview. I ask you off like my copious notes here that I took during the interview. But is there maybe you could tell listeners where, you know, they can find you and if you have any parting words to say, and then we'll leave, of course, all your contacts and your newsletter in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah, I'd say probably the, the our favorite place to engage right now is the management playbook. So it's our weekly newsletter. If you write back to us, we'll write back to you. So that's a, it's the fastest path to having a conversation with us. A lot of people will find us on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. So those are probably the three most easily accessible places. And again, we run some public cohorts for leaders who want to level up with some 101 and 201 management systems. And so you can also find that on those social profiles if you're interested. Dave, thank you so much for being here. We will leave all the reference in the in the show notes for listeners. Uh, so if they want to reach reach out to you, they can. And thank you so much for, for this amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. This was great. And for listeners, see you next time. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.